I'm Ed Gross, and you're listening to CloserWeekly.com's classic TV and film podcast, where we celebrate the golden age of television and movies, then and now. When you think of classic TV from the early 70s, it's hard to imagine the Partridge family not being in the mix. A wonderful combination of comedy and music, it follows the title characters at home, on the road, and perhaps most importantly, in the recording studio. During its 1970-74 ABC run, the Partridge family became quite the phenomenon. It also turned series star David Cassidy into a teen heartthrob, while inspiring a whole lot of merchandise, most notably music that was released on a variety of albums, with songs like I Think I Love You, Doesn't Somebody Want to Be Wanted, and I Woke Up in Love This Morning. The music of the Partridge family, as well as David Cassidy's solo career, captured the imagination of writer Johnny Ray Miller, who felt compelled to write a book about it in the form of When We're Singing, The Partridge Family and Their Music, which features the voices of over 100 people he interviewed. Now it's John's turn to answer the questions, which he does in this installment of the podcast. What is it about David Cassidy and the Partridge Family that inspired you to do this book? The music. Beyond any shadow of any doubt, I find that the music is incredibly impressive uh, and very underrated as time has gone by. And I think that has a lot to do with the image, you know, of, of the television show and all of that. It's, um, you know, it's, it's so strong because it was a part of the television show uh, that, you know, it, it's music that comes from TV seems to have a harder time uh, getting a, a strong reputation, uh, at least from that era, don't you think? You know, I think the monkeys had the same problem. Yeah, and eventually the question becomes, does the music ultimately transcend the TV show? And I don't mean while it's airing, but as the decades go on, does the music live independent of the show? And I think, like, for instance, the monkeys' music now does to a large degree. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the Partridge family could. The catch there is... Uh, that the monkeys eventually uh, created, you know, their own music and they all sang and, you know, played and all of that. And the cast of the Partridge family, it was David Cassidy and Shirley Jones. But I think that that is really acceptable as time has passed on. Even then, you know, they weren't too sure at the time um, if lip syncing would be approved of, but very quickly, you know, it, w- it became common knowledge that Shirley Jones and David Cassidy were the singers and the actors were the actors and nobody had a problem with that, you know? I also used to look at the music, I mean, and this was a criticism I used to have. It's like, like I'm a giant Beatles fan, for instance, and I used to look at music in general when the artist wasn't writing his own music. I was always like, really? Shouldn't you be writing your own music? But I don't. Yeah. Th- but I don't know if that's remained now because obviously the Partridge Family had the music written for them and stuff as well. But then you look at bands like you know, come to the modern era, or maybe not modern, but close to. You're talking about In Sync. You're talking about um, oh, I, I don't know, whichever One Direction. I mean, you think of any of these bands, and the music is for the most part being written for them. So I guess it's not the yeah. stigma that I imagined it being. Right. I think you know that kind of. It's a time past um, where maybe we thought like that. But, um, you know, the music that was written for the Partridge family was written by some of the greatest songwriters of the era. Few people realize Mike Appel and Jim Credicos were writing for the Partridge family while at the same time they were discovering this unknown new talent called Bruce Springsteen. Um, 
and then went on to manage his early career. Uh, Cashman and West wrote for the Partridge Family, while at the same time they were producing Jim Croce. Uh, and great songwriters. Paul Anka wrote for the Partridge Family. Rupert Holmes wrote for the Partridge Family. Um, uh, John Baylor co-wrote uh, a couple of songs with Wes Farrell, and uh, I can't think of his name now, uh, but he produced Pet Sounds. Oh, who is that? Beach Boys. Um, Brian Tony Wilson. Asher. Oh, oh, I'm thinking Brian Wilson. No way Brian Wilson did the Partridge Family, but okay, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. No. <laughs> Tony Asher uh, actually wrote a song for the Partridge Family. So it, it's stuff like that that I love to put out there because this music was great music, and the musicians themselves, they were fantastic. It was the Wrecking Crew guys, the same guys that were playing on the Mamas and the Papas and Elvis albums and the Beach Boys albums. These guys were playing on the Partridge Family, and I interviewed many of them for my book, and they all had positive, great things to say about the music of the Partridge Family and the voice of David Cassidy. But now the music, was the music unfairly dismissed as bubblegum? I mean, granted, it's bubblegum pop in a lot of cases, but was th was it that a cause of it being dismissed, do you think, rather than being taken seriously? Yes, I think I think that term bubblegum is one I don't like. Sorry, because it <laughs> creates a stigma in your head from that era anyway, from yeah. that period in time. And. You know, as David Cassidy pointed out many times, uh, and it's so true, too, that during that period and era, young people were always sort of identifying themselves with the kind of music that they listened to. I don't know if that's still true today, but um, that music, you know, it's kind of I always say it's sort of like this sort of weird catch 22. Um, would you have the music without the show and would you have the show without the music? Uh, they the music definitely pushed the ratings up. When the records came out, the Partridge Family ratings went up because the show had, did not have a renewal uh, right off the bat for its second half of its first season. Uh, but those ratings started to go up once that music got out there. Now, I Think I Love You was out a month or so before the show premiered, and Wes Farrell, the producer, was pushing it really hard to get someone to play it. And finally, you know, when someone finally played it, it went straight to number one at a local radio station, and then the effect of that became national, and then it affected the television show. So there's sort of that what came first, the chicken or the egg kind of thing, you know? Absolutely. You know, and, and I don't know if I should be proud of this or not, but every time I think I love you comes on, damn, if I don't know every word, <laughs> the song all these years later, it's amazing. Oh, it's amazing. And the complexity too to the song, I come to understand as I interviewed these guys from the Wrecking Crew, Mike Melvoin uh, was the arranger on all the Partridge Family albums. And, you know, John Baylor was the vocal arranger. And these guys worked hand in hand and seamlessly together. And they talked about the complexities of the music and how proud they were um, that this music was, you know, really good music. The, the arrangements are really strings based in many ways, which probably wouldn't have hit the charts so heavily if it didn't have, you know, some power behind it uh, with all of these power hitting musicians and, you know, um, the power of uh, the television show when it's, you know, Shirley Jones right there. She was a major movie star uh, who took that show and has everything to do with that show really getting off the ground. Right. You know, how hard, though, is it, having spoken to these guys, was it a challenge to write music for a TV show that had to cater to a certain audience at a certain time on a certain network 
was did that constrain them at all in terms of the kind of music they wanted to write, or did they write to order kind of thing? No, uh, you know what's really I, one of the most fascinating things to me is the chemistry of all of these guys behind the scenes that were working together. Um, they had a great producer with Bob Claver, who Bob Claver was, you know, he had he started his career on Captain Kangaroo and um, had done a couple of shows. And he was the executive producer of the TV show. And he worked uh, with the, he wasn't a music guy. And he said that from the beginning, but he got the greatest people on board, which is what good leaders do. And he trusted them. And so Wes Farrell had an ear for hits. And so Wes would come in uh, to Bob Claver and say, you know, hey, I got this, you know, I got a great one right here, and I think it would fit in well with, you know, this episode or that episode. And Bob Claver let him lead the way. And, you know, Wes, when Wes put out I Think I Love You and it went straight to number one, okay, then the, then the next important thing he does is he gets a second hit. So once he had a second hit with Doesn't Somebody Want to Be Wanted, no one was going to question uh, what he was doing. And Wes was smart enough to, again, align himself with the greatest singers and songwriters and musicians that were available. And he was a go-getter and, you know, he got those people together. So they really worked quite well together. Bob Claver told me in the interview I did with him that he also never put any pressure on Wes to deliver hits because he understood the creative process and he knows that when you start, you know, he knew that when you started to pressure an artist, you could start to get some bad material and that did not happen on the Partridge family, which I think is why all of those songs are just so tightly crafted and well put together. But was there put, I mean, David Cassidy made no secret of the fact that this was not his kind of music, you know, over the years, he was very vocal about that. Did they have to deal with pushback at all from him? regarding the music? Um, David Cassidy was 19, uh, you know, when he took the show and, um, he was very proud of that music. Uh, he just wanted to grow artistically. Like I think most brilliant, um, artists want to, you know, whether you're a canvas artist or a musician or an actor or a singer, um, everyone wants to grow and everyone wants to, um, be versatile. And I think that's what he wanted to do. Um, and the Partridge family went on for four years. That's twice as long as the monkeys. So, you know, about two years into it, um, he wanted to, to do some other things. And, um, but the sound of the Partridge family, uh, was something that was expected, I think by possibly the audiences, um, who really knows, but in his desire to want to grow, he started to put out solo albums. So Bell Records got behind him and he put out um, three solo albums, one live album, and then there was a hits album all on Bell Records. You know, I think it's so fascinating that this guy put out, there were 10 Partridge Family albums and five David Cassidy albums. That's 15 albums that were delivered in four years between 1970 and 1974. I, that is incredible to me. And if you listen to them, they're all really well done. <laughs> well, and that is amazing. But you know what? That But that was, I don't know if it's, well, maybe it's still the same today. But you think about it, especially back then, man, if you had something successful, they were, they were so afraid that that fire was going to burn out that they cranked out as much as they possibly could, as fast as they possibly could. Yeah. Whatever it was you're talking about in terms of, 
the music. I mean, look at the Beatles even, right? I go back to the Beatles. I'm obsessed. What can I tell you? But Capitol Records, they take these Beatles and start slicing them into pieces, basically. So they take one album and turn them into three, uh, you know, or something or two. Uh, You know, and, and it seems like they just want to cash in because they're so afraid that the magic is going to wear off and people are going to get move on and get, you know, get tired and move on from it. So now yeah, if you could hold on yeah. to the quality during that period, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And I think the Partridge family did, um, you know, like any TV show, uh, it was going to run only as long as it was going to run. Um, but, um, those albums, if you listen to them, there were eight studio albums and two hits albums. All eight of those studio albums are tight. They are strong. Uh, the vocals are strong. Um, the background vocals are strong. The arrangements are so beautifully done. And the songwriting, uh, Tony Romeo never gets enough credit. He was certainly the songwriter who connected with David Cassidy uh, you know how you always have that singer-songwriter connection? You yeah. always see those with different bands. Tony Romeo was certainly the songwriter who understood how to write for David probably better than anyone. And uh, David really loved Tony Romeo's writing and what he could deliver. Uh, so, you know, there was four years of some great music there. And... Um, you know, it lives on. I think that, you know, if you listen to it uh, and you listen to it for exactly what it is, music and um, strip away any kind of vision or image, um, anybody who loves the 70s is going to listen to that music and love it. Do you feel there should be more of a push of that music today? Because, I, you know, you don't hear any reference to it at all, really, these days. I'm just wondering, do you think that the quality is so strong that the that whoever owns the right should be pushing it harder than they are? Well, um, I've made made it part of my mission to continually speak uh, about this this body of music. I feel it's underrated. I think David Cassidy is the most underrated vocalist and artist of the 1970s, and that he should be remembered uh, right up there along the likes of Elton John and Rod Stewart and all of these uh, great vocalists and singers and songwriters of that era. You know, you, unfortunately, you're pushing back against the impression. I'm not saying it's fair. The impression of the Partridge family being, again, a kiddie show. You know what I mean? And I understand what you're saying about the music, but that's what I think you're yeah. pushing against is the collective memory of what the Partridge family is. Um, yeah. Well, you know, what's, I'll tell you what's interesting about that conversation is uh, the age bracket of which we all are who actually remember the Partridge family. Um, that's definitely a question for them. And for us, do we look back and are we still affected by the image? I don't don't think so. Um, I think now, you know, we're all adults with careers. We're all in our 50s and 60s, uh, maybe 40s. We are the people who remember all of that. But in my experience with this and going around and selling my book and um, talking about the Partridge family, when you get under 40, a lot of them don't even know who it is and you have to explain to them a little bit about it or, oh, they know what it was and they never watched it, and they, but they usually weren't familiar with the music. Right. Um, but does our bracket, our age bracket, do we look back and um, I'd like to think that now uh, we're all adults with education behind us and we separate the two. So we know what it means to create a marketing image, and we understand how that is separate from uh, the music um, when we listen to the music. Uh, That's the key thing, though. You know, 
for those who remember the Partridge family with a certain image attached, but don't know the music, they need to listen to the music right. because the music is definitely not bubblegum. It's certainly adult contemporary, easy listening style music. But in order to see that, uh, you actually have to sit down and watch the show and then listen to the music. Part of the challenge, I think, for the for it to be enduring music is that it has to be handed down. It, ha it you know, it has to be one of those bands that the people yeah. our age, like you know, I was there as a kid when the Partridge Family debuted. You know, have to hand it on to their kids for it to live on, and that to me seems yeah. to be the challenge to get people to do that, so that there's this constant, you know, people coming up knowing the music, listening to the music, and appreciating the music. Yeah, I think you're right. And I get the biggest thrill when I do conventions and uh, people come up to talk to me about the book. My greatest thrill comes from young people when they come up. I really love that. What happens is they're seeing it on television on the stations that are that choose to rerun the Partridge family. And I love that when that happens. But for whatever reason, through the years, I don't think the Partridge family's gotten that much airtime in reruns compared to some of the other shows of that era. So um, with new stations out there now, like MeTV and Antenna TV, which is where the Partridge family's airing, I think people are seeing it and right. they're hearing that music. Well, I hope you're right. I mean, I really hope it, it, it does get passed on, you know. Yeah, I sure hope so, too. I mean, it's such a great body of music. It's um, really, really well done. What is, you know, shifting from the music for a bit, what is the background of this show? I mean, do you do you know that history of how the show came together in the first place? Yeah. Um, the creator of the show, Bernard Slade, was um, hired by Screen Gems as a writer to produce one of his jobs was to put forward three pilot scripts each year. And so he always had this idea in his head that he wanted to do something about a singing family, but it hadn't really taken shape yet. So he's from Canada originally, and he had done a variety show up there, and it was right along the lines of that. And that went well. So, you know, he started to think more about it, and one night he was watching, of all things, The Sound of Music. And um, the fact that this family was a real family that that sang, that inspired him even more. Uh, but the story he tells is that um, when he sat down one night to watch The Tonight Show and the cow sills appeared, that's what triggered him to sit down and write the pilot script. And it was because now we had a family that sings together and makes records. So uh, when I interviewed him, he made a strong point to me that – no, the Partridge family was not strictly inspired by the cow sills, which is what everyone thinks. It had three inspirations, but it was the cow sills that was the trigger for him to sit down and put it all together. Interesting. Okay. Now, was it hard to turn that into a TV show, though? You know what I mean? Like, okay, here's the concept. Is it tough to pull those elements together, though, and turn that into a series? Yeah, I'm sure it is. And I'll tell you, uh, Bob Claver, the executive producer, talked to me about that, about getting the pilot off the ground. Um, so Bar Bernard Slade wrote the pilot and delivered it, and they liked it. And Bob Claver took it on. And I guess they worked really hard on the pilot. Uh, they even shot a couple of scenes. They went down to Vegas and shot a couple of location scenes down there at Caesars Palace um, because the Partridge family's you know, first gig uh, was was in Vegas. So um, the cast remembers the ride down there and doing some shots down there and how excited they all were 
um, to be part of this. And Bob Claver told me that putting the pilot together, Paul Witt was one of the producers too. And he said the same thing to me about um, how hard they worked on this pilot and how they all had this vision for it that seemed to be the chemistry was there and you know they felt really good about it whether or not the networks were going to pick it up you know was up to the networks but they did and um and it was an immediate hit it was uh, it was a slow climb and again when that that music i think when that music started to you know become a thing that's when the ratings probably started to go up right because by christmas they had the renewal for the rest of their first season. Was it difficult? You know, you pointed out that Shirley Jones was a movie star, and of course we all know that, but was it tough getting her involved? And also the question about David Cassidy, was he reluctant becoming a part of it? So the two of those, two of them, I mean. Shirley Jones was excited to be a part of this because she was at a place in her life where she wanted to continue to work uh, in such a way that she could be at home and raise her children because they were small. So doing a TV show was good timing for her uh, with what she wanted to do with her life. And she had a good relationship with David. And um, so when David took the show, um, Shirley was, uh, they've all said this uh, to me, um, including David, that Shirley was someone that they all respected um, tremendously and they looked to her uh, for, you know, learning and figuring out how to navigate their life in this thing called show business. And so, you know, I think Shirley has a lot to do with creating this incredible atmosphere that was the set of the Partridge family. And how about David, him getting involved? I mean, I don't know if, I know, like you said, he was only 19 or something, but did he have a tough time deciding whether or not to sign on the dotted line, so to speak? He, uh, David had done several TV shows prior to this, um, dramatic roles in Bonanza and the FBI and, um, his agent, uh, or his manager, I should say, had got him the script and he was hesitant about it at for at first. Um, but then he discussed it with her and he kind of leaned to, you know, his family for advice and they felt that he should do it. So he was hesitant. Um, but when he got into it, you know, he, he did like the music. Uh, there's there's some tremendous articles if you go digging um, that have David Cassidy talking about the music just prior to the release of the show, and uh, everyone who worked with him in the studio talked about how excited he was to be a part of the music in all of this. The Wrecking Crew guys, that you know, they all told me that David took it very seriously and he wanted to be part of it and he would come to the sessions and um, learn from them and thank them. Uh, clear, actually, there's a great story that I tell in the book, uh, Max Bennett, who was um, one of the bass players for the Partridge family, one of the Wrecking Crew guys, and he played bass on all of them, told me this great story about how not too many years ago, um, it was within the last decade, he got this phone call out of the blue from David, who just called to tell him how much he appreciated his talent and all the work that he did on the Partridge family music back in the day. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So for for all of the um, desire that he had to do different kinds of music, he always loved the music that he started with. He just um, he wanted to grow and he wanted, um, 
you know, the, he wanted to have a following with that. He wanted people to grow with him. I think that was what he was always after. And, you know, what was it like for him, though, for a guy who's treating music so seriously and wanting to grow? What was it like for him to be a teen idol the way he was? You know what I mean? The covers of magazines and merchandise and people screaming, yeah. you know, after him because of the Partridge family and stuff. I mean, I would imagine that's got to yeah. take a toll on somebody, especially if they're trying to be taken seriously as an artist. Can you imagine? I know. Um, I will tell you that after I interviewed over 100 people for my book and have talked to many more since. And um, what I finally come back to is that I don't think anyone can possibly know what that's like until you're in it. Um, I just can't even imagine what that would be like. Uh, it's so far beyond all of our imaginations um, because who here – you know, who do we know? How many people do we know that can we can relate to being the highest paid entertainer on the planet in 1972? Um, he had the biggest fan club uh, of all time. Um, some reports said that it was bigger than the Beatles and Elvis's fan clubs combined. Um, so I don't know, you know, what that must have been like. Can you imagine? No, <laughs> no, I cannot. I can't either. Yeah. But then when you become so so identified with something like this and then the show ends and then the fandom, I mean, his personal fandom may not have faded, but the excitement starts to fade as the show goes off the air. It's always the way it goes. How hard is it to move forward, do you think, for someone like David when people, you know, people are holding on to this image of what he is as part of the Partridge family and yet he's trying to now strike out on his own because there is no show supporting the, the concerts or anything anymore? Yeah, and that is uh, such an interesting um, thing to talk about because I think timing always has a lot to do with uh, the success of so many talented artists. They need that timing to um, you know come together for them. Oh, just like we all do in life for anything, right? The timing always has to be good. Um, and I think you know David once talked about. Uh, he got a deal with RCA to do three solo albums right after the Partridge family. And, um, he didn't want to tour anymore. Uh, he, he really wanted to do the records and continue to make music, but he didn't want to go out to tour anymore. And so I think, uh, David has said many times that had he toured, those albums probably would have done better. And I think that's probably true. Uh, those albums though, um, once again, great albums, they, you've got two of the three of them are produced by Bruce Johnston and the other one was produced by Jerry Beckley. And they are some of the greatest solo albums that David Cassidy has put out. Right. You know, but as they're not working and stuff, I mean, and, and this is the problem. I know David went into act, you know, additional acting and tried to move beyond music. He had the TV show uh, was the David Cassidy man undercover. I think uh, he does these different things. How hard of a struggle was it in all the years that followed for him to sort of keep his presence in music? Um, well, I'll tell you, uh, it, it seems to me that every time he would do a solo album, the fans would come out for it. Um, it just always seemed that way to me. When he came back in 1990 and put that album out, self-titled David Cassidy, the fans were 
ecstatic. I was one of them. And they were lining up around the building at Sam Goody's um, to meet him the day that that album was released. And so um, how much time has, to, you know, sometimes I wonder, is there a time thing that has to pass before retro becomes a thing? You know, like Donny Osmond came back and that was right around the same time, actually, that right. David Cassidy yeah. So it's kind of an interesting thing to look at how much time, you know, needs to happen between in the space between the releases of those solo albums probably has a lot to do with we as the audience who are also growing and um, where we're at in our lives, you know, and, um, you know, the timing again, having to play out in some kind of right way for the artist and for the fans. For David, was he able to stay optimistic about his career and that sort of thing? And again, I'm not getting into any of his personal issues. I just mean in terms of an artist, was he, you know, when he's dealing with the marketplace as it was, was that all very difficult for him or did he roll with it, do you think? I always felt, and from talking with like John Baylor, who knew him well, um, that John Baylor put it really, really greatly in my book. He uh, He talked about how he felt that, David was so unique and had a sound that was so his own that he didn't really realize that there was no one like him. So, you know, he, he would, he would struggle in his mind about how he wanted to sound or who he wanted to sound like when really he had his own sound that it, it was its own and it was, irre, you know, it was kind of irreplaceable or non-duplicatable, if you will. I always think of the voice of Karen Carpenter like that. Um, it's just a voice that doesn't sound like anyone else's and it's got all this great complexity to it. I, that's how I hear David Cassidy's voice. So, you know, um, you know, I don't know what his uh, thoughts were in his struggles and how he perceived it how he perceived the way the audience was seeing it. But uh, he certainly, you know, I just feel that his fans were always there and they always believed in him as a talent. Well, we think we'd love you if you subscribed to this podcast, told your friends about us and gave us a five-star review. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next time.